My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we take irreverent dives into lesser-known stories about the early presidents and their families. Hi, this is Jess Dory. And I'm Howard Dory. Today, we're going to focus on someone who might be one of the most influential women in American history, and who's been treated or portrayed as both a saint and a monster. Anne Royale? No. Oh. No. I'm talking about Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mother. Okay. Yes. This was one of your best posts on your blog before the podcast. This was one of those posts that really kind of highlighted what your voice was, I thought. What was the name of that post? It was uh, Washington's Mortifying Mother yes. and My Own. I would highly recommend checking that out because it does give you a little glimpse into Howard's uh, childhood and his relationship with his own mother as he compares it to Washington's relationship with his mother. So, I might agree to disagree as far as some of the authenticity oh, of, really? of that post. And we'll get to that in a bit. Interessante. Yes. So Mary Washington has been treated differently over time. Okay. Early biographers of George Washington, they talked about her like the mother Mary who could do no wrong. Uh, but then there was a huge shift in like the 1930s through the 50s. And suddenly she became this overprotective, overbearing, greedy, illiterate woman who was like the bane of George Washington's existence. I noticed things do move in like a pendulum. Yeah. Like in extremes first. And so where are we to the middle yet? Middle ground? Or is it? are we still sitting in one of those extremes nowadays? The good news is that now she's finally getting a fair shake by historians like Martha Saxton and Alexis Coe, because for far too long, biographers have just repeated stories about her mm-hmm. that either aren't true or they're exaggerated or they're unfairly misinterpreted. And I have to say that I was part of that problem. Wow. That's very, very big of you. Thank you. Because you are known now as the Mythbuster who can do no wrong as far as truth-telling. And you actually accidentally um, passed on some myths, huh? You know, I'm not proud of it, um, but you are right. I have reached the pinnacle of of Um, (laughs) self-efficacy. It doesn't get better than this, is what you're saying. uh, I'm almost to nirvana as far as (laughs) growing as a person and, and realizing just what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to dig into the stories that have been used to define Mary Washington. Great. This is a story told in four acts. I love it. I love acts. In act one, we're going to look at some facts of Mary Washington's life and how her life was shaped by death. In act two, we'll address the four points that some biographers continue to attack her for. The examples used to prove that she was terrible. Hmm. In Act 3, we're going to look at a family story that Mary Washington was removed from that's a possible predecessor to the famous cherry tree myth. Huh. Only it's a lot darker. Ooh. And in Act 4, we'll look at a story that's evolved over time as a truly electrifying explanation for both Mary's overprotectiveness and a sort of superhero origin story for George Washington. Yes, love that. I'm very excited about this. Yes. And along the way, I'm going to mention two new biographies of Mary Ball Washington Mm -hmm. uh, that came out within three months of each other in 2019. Oh, wow. Oh, I love it when you pull books out of the darkness. Yeah. So Like you've been holding them between your legs or something. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that came out in June of 2019. The Widow Washington, The Life of Mary Washington by Martha Saxton. Mm -hmm. And then I think this came out in September of 2019. Mary Ball Washington, the untold story of George Washington's mother. Oh, the untold part. So do you think they coordinated coming out together? Or, I mean, 
It's I, crazy I, that they came out within three months. And are they, do they contradict each other at all? That's what I'm interested these in. These are good questions. I, th- I think it was kind of like Dante's Peak and Volcano and Armageddon and Deep Impact. Exactly. Um, all at the same time. And now I just get them confused. <laughs> yeah. No, these books are very different oh, in how, how so? they approach things. Um, well, one of them by Martha Saxton, she uh, has a long history of writing about um, women whose stories maybe haven't been at the forefront of things. And she comes at it with that perspective. So that's where she's coming from. Uh, Craig Shirley comes from a different place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Something tells me, um, okay, we're going to hear about these books, right? Uh, yeah. Your... We're going to talk about their different approaches. Reading them both, I think, was really eye-opening and frustrating. Okay. So act one, a life shaped by death. Mary Ball Washington, she's been portrayed as an overprotective mother consumed with a fear that her son could die at any moment. And of all the charges against her, this one is the most reasonable when you look at her life. Hmm. Her father died when she was three years old. Hmm. Then her mother remarried and her stepfather died when she was six. Is it possible her mother you know, was like the Black Widow? Um, I don't know. Because when Mary was 12, both her mother and her brother died. Oh, no. So she was orphaned at 12. Oh, it's terrible. And she Death ha- constantly, like every three years. Yeah, she had to grow up even faster than most kids her age. Mm. It just seems like a very difficult time to live. Oh, for that sure. That people were dying constantly. Yeah. So she married Augustine Washington when she was 22. They had six children together. George was the oldest. Their youngest child died when she was just one year old. And then three years later, Augustine died, leaving Mary with five children. Alone. Yeah. Well, of course she was traumatized. I mean, I would be. Yeah. I can't imagine. I can't either. Just constant, constant abandonment. (laughs) George was just 11 years old when his father died. And Mary was left to raise the children alone. Not completely alone because she became a slave owner when she was three. So that was after her father died. Yeah. She was put in that position. Yeah. Um, And then after her husband died, were they still slave owners? Yeah. Yeah, she always was. Okay. So her life and now George's life were significantly shaped by death. Mm -hmm. Now, they weren't paupers by any means. But Augustine's death radically changed the family's lives, and it meant that cash was now a struggle. Mm-hmm. So George's older brothers, they were both shipped off to grammar school in England when they were young. I thought George was oldest. George was the oldest of her children. Mm-hmm. But when she married Augustine, he oh, already had a few kids. I see. Okay. And his children had gone, or at least the men, mm-hmm. had gone to uh, school in England. That's mm-hmm. what the elite did. And that's what George would have done. Mm-hmm. But Augustine died, and that did not happen. So George never had a formal college education of any kind. It wasn't an option anymore. Much of his education, practical and moral, came from his mother. uh, Because for whatever reason, she never remarried. Mm -hmm. Maybe she was done. (laughs) She's like, I'm done losing everybody. Right? So after losing not one, not two, but three parents by the age of 12, and a brother, then a child and a husband within three years, if she had a strong fear of losing anyone else close to her, it's, it's pretty understandable. Yeah. And you could probably cut her some slack. Yeah. But many biographers did not. Well, maybe because everyone was losing family members left and right like that. I'm not sure. I don't think they were losing family members at the clip that Mary Washington was. Okay. Um, and I don't think that they were taking on the leadership role that mm-hmm. she was as a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some of them seem to hold that against her. Mm, like maybe she should have remarried and, and had some, some man... Take, take over those duties. Yeah. Um, they see her as controlling for not getting remarried. Oh, well, that's sexist. Yeah. That's majorly sexist. And that brings us to act two. Why Mary Washington was terrible. I think that biographers couldn't resist the metaphor of George Washington's fighting for independence from his mother, priming him for his fight for independence from his country. Wow. I mean, that. Talk about not comparable. Yeah. I mean, they, that's just, it's, it's just very different. <laughs> yes. I think that's a big part of the narrative that they, they weave. And I think that a lot of them have just simply made the mistake of trusting George Washington. And usually that's not a bad thing to do. But you can't trust someone to be objective about their own mother. This is true. I mean, I don't know. Well, there's always going to be emotional ties. Exactly. 
So it's hard to be objective, but you can have, I think, valid opinions. Well, certainly you can have an analysis of of her as a person. You can have opinions and you can have feelings and you can have annoyances, but they're valid. They well, they may exist, but it doesn't mean that the other person can be shaped or defined by those things. Absolutely. And that's what's happening. I agree with I agree with that. All right. So there are really four ideas that have been used to prove just how terrible she was. First, there's the idea that she desperately tried to stop him from achieving his dreams. Is that true? Or should I let you finish? Well, we're going to dig into it. All but right. um, I'll get comfortable. Yes, get comfortable, cozy in. Then you've got the time that when he was at war and his life was in danger, uh, she wrote to him asking for butter. Mm-hmm. There's also the idea that she was actually a loyalist rooting against George Washington's Continental Army. And worst of all, She was a greedy, money-grubbing woman who complained no matter what and even petitioned the Virginia legislature to give her the money that he wouldn't. These are the things Mm -hmm. that have been leveled against her. I remember all these things from your post. Yes, almost all of those claims are either not true or seriously misconstrued. Wow. And I bought into all of them when I first wrote about her in 2014. But you were, you know, a youngin. I was. I was was naive. I was... um, you were just blossoming and percolating into your into your um, analytical being. Yeah, and I'd read a biography of Washington by James Thomas Flexner, and he was one of the pioneers in like the anti-Mary camp. And that's the book that you put in my stocking that kicked off oh, this whole I adventure. Did I really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I just read reviews, and everyone said it was great. So I just <laughs> I just put it in your. Stock. I enjoyed reading it. I, I appreciated it. I wasn't really looking at the which camp I was buying for you, which viewpoints. So. No, you didn't realize that you were filling my stocking with lies. I'm so sorry. I'm responsible for for promoting myth. Um. Yeah. There you have it. I guess <laughs> it's all my fault. <laughs> it's all your fault. I'm sorry. Martha Sexton, she challenges all of these in ways that previous biographers really didn't do because she looks at the sources and she asks radical questions like, would you say this about a man? Mm, Martha Sexton, I like you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that might seem like a simple question. Um, It's true. I mean, I think that's the question everyone should ask themselves whenever they have a thought about a woman. Pretty much. (laughs) Ever. It doesn't hurt. if If you're confused about how to act in the workplace, for example... Just think, would I say that to a man? Would I do that to a man? Would I reach over and hug a man when he, you know, <laughs> oh, whatever, at work? Yeah. Could, what else? <laughs> oh, I could go on. All but... right. Um, no, exactly. So, all right, let's look at these ideas. The first one is the idea that Mary Washington stopped her son from achieving his dreams. I mean, he did achieve his dreams, so she wasn't, even if that were true, she didn't successfully stop him from achieving. Maybe he had even bigger dreams. Oh, okay. He wanted to found a whole other country, too. (laughs) Imagine what he could have become if she had not limited him. (laughs) Yeah, he seems pretty stunted. Yeah. Um, It's a fact that when George Washington was 14, he was being pressured to join the British Navy as a midshipman. Mm -hmm. This would have given him some experience, maybe some adventures, and some income. But Mary Ball Washington stopped him. Maybe she didn't want him to die. Yes, that is it. Because her brother Joseph clued her into the fact that maybe like a third of the American soldiers, especially in midshipmen or cabin boys, did die. And also, he told her that as an American midshipman, the British soldiers would cut him and staple him and use him like a Negro or rather like a dog. Oh, that's harsh. Yeah. And lots of levels. Well, you know what? If he, skipping that harsh, that's a very harsh statement. But say she did let him go, maybe he would have died and he would have never been the president. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we could be in a very different situation. We very could different be. history books. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that plus the fact that a third of them died at sea, it would be understandable and commendable even for any mother to stop her son from doing that. Right. And when you consider all the people she lost, it's even more understandable that she wasn't about to let him go die at sea when he was 14. And by the way, later when George was 19, this was the one time that he did get on a ship and actually really travel. He went to Barbados with his Mm -hmm. brother Mm -hmm. to help heal his brother's tuberculosis. And what happened? He went and got smallpox and he almost died. (laughs) So the one time he did get on a boat. Didn't go well. No. His life was a series of overcoming deathly illnesses. 
So anybody close to him, I mean, they had to fear that he could just go at any time. Yeah. Got to protect that brilliance. You know. Don't let that kid die. She's his eldest boy. Yeah. So, I mean. Georgie Georgie boy. What? (laughs) Georgie boy. Who's Georgie? Maybe that's what she called him. I don't know. That's disturbing. Um, Then there's another story that ties into this one, uh, but it happens when George is 23. He's already joined up with the British Army. He's been in some hellish battles. And he left the army. That's one of his many retirements that didn't really last. He's asked to rejoin, and he's all about it. Mary hears about this, and she rides 50 miles to show up at his house and express her concerns. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. We know about this meeting from a letter of George's where he apologizes for not making a plan to meet up with his superiors. This is all that he says. The arrival of a good deal of company, among whom is my mother, alarmed at the reports of my intentions to attend your fortunes, prevents me the pleasure of waiting upon you today as I had intended. That's all he said. Mm-hmm. But Ron Cherno, um, he's the author of a big old biography on Washington, just considered the premier biography. He also wrote the Hamilton biography that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda. Wow. Um, by all accounts, it's a great, enjoyable biography, but parts of it deserve serious criticism, mm-hmm. especially his treatment of Mary. Alexis Co. does a great job pointing this out. Uh, she shows how Cherno uses words about Mary, like illiterate, slovenly, shrewish, Ew. crusty. Ew. Yeah, crusty, by the way, I don't think it's a compliment. No. Yeasty, however, um, is. is a compliment. <laughs> that's a word biographers used for Dolly Madison, and that's a good thing. Okay. So yeasty, good. Like plump. Crusty, but I think it's like bubbly, like rising, like Ew. effervescent. Okay. Yeah, yeasty. Yeasty. Yeah. Crusty doesn't sound so good. No. Crusty sounds like you need some Q-tips to clear that out. Yeah. Although, I mean, I would rather eat something crusty, like, you know. We've talked about this also in our early episodes, and I know this and remember this because I was reviewing it for our merch. Okay. Um, so we talked about how crusty is one of my least favorite words. Mm. We did. Really? Crusty. We did talk about that. Okay, I, f- I forgot. That, no, that's okay. That, like I said, I just listened to it. Yeah, well, here is this biographer calling her crusty. Well, it's just not okay. And when has a man ever been called crusty or, yeah. or shrewish? Or, exactly. Well, shrew is yeah, a woman. You can't, yeah. A man can't be a shrew. Or illiterate. I mean, it's just there's well, sometimes basically calling her dumb. Yeah, and you know what? She could read. She did read. She could write. Wasn't the greatest speller, but most people were. Neither weren't. am I. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't call you crusty. And you know, thanks, babe. <laughs> um, this reminds me of that time we were at Josh and Cammy's wedding, and I reached into your ear at the at the dinner table and pulled out some like ball of wax. And in the car on the way home, Ew, you were no, like, "It wasn't a ball of wax. It oh, was yeah, it was a, a hair. hair." Okay, you found a hair in my ear, and you reached over and you plucked it out in front of everybody. And that hair was like connected to my central Brain. nervous system, and it was like so painful so and sorry. so violating. I know. I'm sorry. I thought it was going to be a simple task, but then in the car on the way home, which you've never had like talks with me about what I was doing (laughs) in public to you, but you had to have a talk with me and you said, please don't ever do that again. Yeah. These are private matters. (laughs) Anyway, where was I going with this? Crusty. I don't know. Oh, some people think pies. I think smallpox. Oh, yes, that's right. Smallpox. That's crusty. Yes. But Um, honestly, you know how sometimes you don't want to do some, especially in high school, you don't feel like seeing that friend or you don't want to go somewhere and you're like, I'm sorry, my mom wouldn't let me go out or I'm sorry, my mom kept me home or I'm sorry, my mom made other plans. You know, you kind Mm -hmm. of, it's very easy to go ahead and blame your mom. And I'm wondering if this is what Washington was doing because maybe he, maybe that's just the excuse he gave. That's a thought. We don't know the truth about what was in his heart. If she was really impeding or maybe he was like, I'm sorry, my mom, my mom stopped by, dude, and I couldn't get out. Well, if he hadn't met up with those same folks like several other times that week and, and it was something we knew that he really wanted to, to be with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether that day wasn't good for him and he used that excuse. Maybe it just took know. a turn. It could have taken it's a like turn. too much of a good thing. But Ron Cherno portrayed this meeting between George and his mother as Mary coming down on him with the wrath of God. <laughs> Goodness gracious. George wrote that she was alarmed at the report of my intentions. And Cherno turned that into her being some kind of banshee. And then he said she had no qualms about thwarting her son's career for her own personal benefit. Jeez. All of this based on nothing. Mm-hmm. Just because she had any kind of opinion at all. Oh, yeah. 
I think. How dare she? How dare she have an opinion? Yeah. And Craig Shirley, he also, he sort of called out Cherno for the way that he talked about Mary. Uh, but he just cites Cherno's hellbent quote here as if there's no better way of characterizing this. As if like, yeah, how dare a woman try to influence or protect her son? What would they say about a father doing the same thing, I wonder? I don't think they would. Right. Martha Saxton swoops in with some perspective. Mary's lost so many people. She's come close to losing George so many times. And she senses his yearning for military glory. Hmm. And that's something that her religious beliefs are very much against. Hmm. The book that she lived by, um, it was a book by Matthew Hale. It was this religious book and it was something that she sort of used as like an instruction manual. Sounds like the Bible. (laughs) It it was, but it was, I mean, it went into more details about like how to live and how to live this Christian Mm -hmm. life. Uh, It was like a manual for pious living Mm -hmm. with her children. And it talked about how striving for a higher status could make someone forgetful of God. And it says honor and applause and successes and glory are poor, empty, insipid things. Mm. That's still a lesson that's good to live by. You know, yeah. if that's all that's important to you, you might feel empty in other ways. Right. Or and that's, what, what void are you trying to fill there? That's how we would take it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, sure, if that's all there is. But right. this is saying that even if that's part of it, like, no, you don't mm-hmm. need that. You don't need all that honor. You don't need to, to get all those accolades. Oh, um, I need accolades. <laughs> well, sure, who doesn't? <laughs> so this was her perspective. And I, I think that maybe lends something to why she would be trying to stop him from from getting this glory. It all makes sense. Yeah. It's reasonable. Um, Also, George, he didn't miss a vital job interview because of her visit. Like, he met up with them on other days of that same week. Right. She did not crush his dreams or thwart his career. Right. Period. And he seems plenty capable of handling himself, honestly. You would think. Now we come to the butter letter. Oh, gosh. A couple months after George went off to fight in the French and Indian War, Mary sent him a letter. And in that letter, she asked if he can get her some butter and a Dutch servant, (laughs) which I guess is better than asking for an African slave. I don't know. Right. We don't know how she worded the request because the letter has been lost. But we have his response to her Mm -hmm. where he says that he's too far outside the settled areas to find a servant. And that butter is scarce for everyone. It's it's like a real thing. There's a butter shortage. Mm-hmm. People can't get it. Based on that, Flexner and Cherno and even Craig Shirley use this story as evidence that she was out of touch mm-hmm. and needy and didn't understand or appreciate what her son was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure these men even understand the importance of butter. <laughs> I know. I was like, I don't think it's that weird to ask for it. I mean, I remember I spent six months in Nepal and when my parents were like, you want us to send you anything? I was like, please go to 7-Eleven and find yeah. those powdered sugar donuts. I really need those to get through this. Nice. Um, even though they ended up being pretty disgusting when they made their way over. Mm. But uh, is it bad asking for butter? I don't know. You know. Maybe he was close to some butter. She, he could bring it back for her because she's been wanting some butter. <laughs> well, Saxton brings up that George was like red in the Shawshank Redemption. He was a man who knew how to get things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really not that out of place that she might have asked him. Also, she looks at the letters that George's brothers sent him at the same time. They had no problems bothering him when he was off on the front. But old Mary asked for some butter and she's a terrible person. Mm-hmm. What, what were they bothering him about? Oh, like real estate advice and crops and just like mm-hmm. nonsense. Um, okay. Well, I mean, important things to their lives. doesn't sound like nonsense. But... <laughs> no, no. It was, <laughs> it was important things to them, I'm sure. But it wasn't like, George, are you okay? Oh, God, we miss you. Mm-hmm. You know, it was everyday life stuff like butter. I mean, they these authors don't see that it's a staple of cooking. Mm-hmm. It's a reason for living. They've mm-hmm. apparently never seen Julie and Julia. <laughs> and in context, it's a pretty normal request. Yeah. But I they, mean, when you think about these letters, they're kind of like phone calls with your family. You yeah. know, I mean, this is how you being like, oh, and if you run into some butter. Yeah. And there's only fragments that exist of, of what they wrote because when George Washington died, his wife burned all of their personal correspondence mm-hmm. between each other, but she also burned most of Mary's letters. Wow. So there's so much we, that we don't we know. We really don't know how she asked for it. Yeah. I mean, not knowing what her actual words were, it's really hard to condemn her for them when exactly. you don't even know what they are. Yeah. I mean, she may have asked for it jokingly. We don't know. He was like, oh, well, don't get your hopes up. I'm oh, out of the range. I don't think people would joke about that kind of thing. I wouldn't. I never joke about butter. No. 
if I want you to get butter, you, you better bring home butter. Exactly. Next, Mary Washington was actually a loyalist to the British crown. Mm-hmm. This is something. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, the claim is that she was actually rooting for Britain to win the war, which would mean she was rooting against her son. Mm-hmm. This is not based on very much at all. And Martha Saxton and Craig Shirley, they both dug into it. Craig mm-hmm. Shirley buys into it. <sighs> or at least he accepts that she was a royalist and she was cool with staying with the British monarchy, which maybe a third of the colonists were. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's true. But the idea that she was supportive of that, even when her son was at war, there's nothing to support that. Okay. And Martha Saxton doesn't buy it. She says the only evidence of this is some French dude. Here's mm-hmm. where I get to butcher his name. Okay. Michel Guillemet Jean de Cravacor. I love how when you try to speak French, your mouth gets like really long and small. That's an interesting thing about the French language is that you speak it uh, with like the front of your mouth. Mm-hmm. And, you know. I thought you spoke it in, with your throat. <laughs> like that. <laughs> Maybe parts <laughs> of it. Sure. But yeah, yeah. Our, we we kind of talk like back here. But I in talk the French, in the you middle. talk very, very close to the front of it. Do, 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 everything is happening <laughs> up here. You turn your mouth into a funnel, and it's kind of funny. All right. <laughs> I'm glad this is not a video podcast. <laughs> Me too. Anyway, this guy, Kravaker, whatever, um, he was writing that he heard from someone else who heard from a local that Mary Washington was a well-known Tory. So well-known, apparently, that no evidence survives to suggest it. Mm-hmm. This isn't like Benjamin Franklin's son, who really, truly was loyal to England and it practically destroyed their relationship. Wow. This is a story being made out of little or nothing, except maybe the fact that Mary preferred peace to war. Mm-hmm. And it's used to drive this bigger, dramatic wedge between George and his mother and maybe tie her to controlling forces that George was trying to fight against. Mm-hmm. There's just no evidence of it. Right. Well, a lot of his letters were burned, though. Yeah, I, I can't imagine her writing like, you know, dear son, I hope you lose. <laughs> <laughs> Love, Mary. <laughs> Love, mom. Yeah. I hope you die out there. <laughs> <laughs> Right. How dare you betray King George III. <laughs> Screw you, never come home unless you have butter. Yes. (laughs) The final reason, number four, money. Mm -hmm. This is the reason the biographers painted her as a terrible woman. Because she had the gall to ask George for money fairly often. (sighs) And Washington, he definitely found this annoying. But he can get over himself. (sighs) She wasn't living on much. And he was super rich. And he spent money like it was going out of style. (sighs) Really? Yeah. And he knew it was a problem, but he couldn't help it. He was having a literal chariot race with his brother. Not like a Ben-Hur chariot race, Uh um, but like a keeping up with the Joneses. Let's see who can order the most lavish chariot just for the hell of it. Wow. And he said that he knew it was a problem, but what could he do? Like stop spending so much money and appear not rich? Yes. Not possible. (laughs) Not possible. Meanwhile, Mary asked for small sums of money. And he acts like it's this huge burden. Not only that, she's living on Ferry Farm, which is not, it's like F-E-R-R-Y. Okay. Otherwise, like when you say it, it sounds like something our daughter would love to visit. I was going to say, well, we should go just so everyone <laughs> can find the fairies. That would be great. Um, Ferry Farm, it's the place that she's lived for decades. Mm-hmm. But legally, the farm belongs to George because women only have rights when there are no men around to take them, I guess. Okay. It's his farm, just one of his farms. And he's letting her live on it. And it bugs him. I don't mean to say that he never did anything for her. Like, he he sent her money. He helped move her into a house in town in Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. partly probably to get her off his farm. <laughs> Martha Saxton points out that he was giving his brothers a lot more money than he was giving her. Well, that's screwed up. But no one brings that up. <laughs> we know that this annoyed George, but just because he found it annoying doesn't automatically mean that she was in the wrong or greedy or right. undeserving. Right. Take care of your mother. Right. Elvis bought, well, I guess George Washington bought his mother a house too, but there was a, a kind of a resentment. Yeah, an animosity about it. Yeah. But the coup de grace, the biggest example of Mary Ball Washington being a financial embarrassment to her son, was a story that she felt so neglected by him that she appealed to the Virginia legislature, asking them to create a law that the mother of the commander in chief should be given a pension. Mm-hmm. This story is almost too wild to believe. Um, But one person who did believe it was George Washington. 
Oh, really? When he heard about it, he told his friend Benjamin Harrison, the, the governor of Virginia, to put a stop to any talk of it. Now, it's possible that she complained to anyone who would listen, um, but there's no evidence to suggest that she had any part of any petition. It just didn't happen. And there's actually evidence that it might have been made up by Washington's enemies to embarrass him. Oh, wow. Yeah. But this is something that's been leveled against her, along with all these other things, to prove that she was this overbearing, money-grubbing, interfering woman. Mm. And that brings us to Act 3. Okay. A horse story. Horse story. Yes. <laughs> I found, Sorry, I couldn't help it. No. You neigh whenever you need to. Oh, noted. Okay. But let <laughs> me ask me first, though. Can I? No. Okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. I found this story in Martha Saxton's book, and it comes from the recollections of George Washington Park Custis. Custis. He was the son of Jackie Custis. Oh, that's George Washington's stepson. Yes, <laughs> okay. we talked about him in season one. I remember now. Yes. He couldn't get his act together. He he was uh, very disappointing. He was disappointing in some ways, and his son was um, not much different, but that's, that's a whole <laughs> other episode. Okay. Um, most people know the famous story that George Washington, uh, when he was a young boy, Got a hatchet from it. Well, you can you can probably tell the story about George Washington and his hatchet. Oh yeah, he got a hatchet from his father, and yeah. then ended up chopping down his father's favorite cherry tree. Yes. And then his father said, "Who the fuck chopped down my cherry tree?" Verbatim. And and he said, "Father, it was I, and I cannot tell a lie." Yes. Probably not with that accent. <laughs> no, just like that. And then they embraced. I only know this story because Emerson and you talked about this story on Kinderplotting. Yes, we did. Which is a mini podcast you and Emerson do for our patrons. And we have some fun with that. Yes, I've learned a few things. Great. It's not just for kindergartners. <laughs> so we know that this story was made up by a guy named Mason Weems, mm -hmm. this preacher who wrote a children's biography of Washington in 1800. It came out right after Washington died. Mm. And it was less a biography and, and more of a book about making Washington an example of how to be good little children. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't know is that this story might have been based on a real family story that's way more screwed up. Really? Mary Washington loved horses. Oh, Jesus. Especially thoroughbreds or blooded horses. Someone hurt the horse. Why do you think this involves a horse getting hurt? Because all the other animals <laughs> in this season have been either butchered or are butcherers. I'm just scared for this horse. I don't there know. There was a hatchet and horse. I'm just worried I don't, I don't that know we're going to get into like an old yeller situation. Oh my goodness. Okay, continue. One of these horses uh, was a particular favorite, one of her favorite horses, a sorrel, which is just a chestnut colored horse. Okay. 
this horse could not be broken. No one had ever been able to ride him. Mm. Acustus says, it was a matter of common remark that a man never would be found hardy enough to back and ride this vicious horse. But Mary was able to ride it. No. <laughs> Young George Washington decides he's going to try to tame this horse with a little help from his friends. With a hatchet? Why? Why are you thinking this has anything to do with a hatchet? Just because I said it was the inspiration for it? Yes, <laughs> exactly. You said that the story was related to this. So I figured there was a hatchet in the story, too. Oh my, this isn't like Chekhov's gun. Like you did, There doesn't need to be a hatchet that comes into it. Okay. All right. Just I'm just put... wondering how it's related to the hatchet and the cherry tree. Is oh, it? my goodness. Will we get there? Washington says, hey, if you guys can help me corner this horse so we can get a bridle on him, I'll try to tame the terror of the parish. So his friends managed to get the horse into an enclosure. They got the bridle on him. They got the bit in his mouth. And then young George jumped onto the horse. How old was George? Somewhere between 15, 11 and oh. 18. Okay. I don't know. You don't know? No. So don't spread rumors. <laughs> <laughs> the horse tried to throw him off. And they struggled so much that his friends thought, all right, this was a bad idea and George is going to die. <laughs> poor, poor Mary. George did not give up. Good. No, according to Custis, the youthful hero clung to the furious steed till, centaur-like, he appeared to make part of the animal itself. Wow. So the horse became half horse, half George Washington, <laughs> which, um, new shirt of, idea. <laughs> that is a new shirt idea. I love it. Um, <laughs> this is reminding me a little of that that moment where Elsa tames the horse yes. of the water. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's... Mm -hmm. um. Wow, a Frozen 2 reference that yes. doesn't involve me criticizing the script. That's great. That's great. Yeah. The horse did not give up either. He kept trying to throw George off. And this horse, quote, summoning all his powers to one mighty effort, reared and plunged with tremendous violence. And he died. The horse? Yes. With George Washington on his back. Oh, my God. Custis wrote that the horse burst his noble heart and died in an instant. Oh my gosh, from being tamed? From this struggle with George Washington oh and his powerful thighs. <laughs> oh my gosh, he killed a horse? Yeah, I mean, and then the Mary, horse died. And then Mary said, where's my horse? Come here, horsey. <laughs> Why Come would here. you think that that's what happens? And then he's like, I killed that horse. Oh my God, this is... I cannot tell a lie. This and is... she's like, it's okay, I love you because you are so honest. That how it, I'm just wondering wouldn't how be, on earth this is related to the wouldn't that be something? Why do I have to hear this terrible story? So George himself was fine, and everybody was like, "What do we do now?" You've killed the horse. Suddenly, they're called in to breakfast. Mary Ball Washington. This was all before breakfast. This was all before breakfast. People got up early. <laughs> it's like that book Little Reed that Emerson has. Yes. It's like all these things that they have to do on a farm before breakfast. Yes, it's like I don't it's, get it. I, I can't live like that. Yeah. Uh, so Mary Bell Washington walks into breakfast and she says, Pray, young gentlemen, have you seen my blooded colts in your rambles? I hope they are well taken care of. My favorite, I am told, is as large as his sire. Oh my goodness. She probably knew and was guilt tripping. <laughs> <laughs> no one answered. Oh God. So she asked again. And George replied, Your favorite, the sorrel, is dead, madam. I'm going to let Custis tell the rest of this story. Dead? exclaimed the lady. Why, how has this happened? Nothing dismayed, the youth continued. That sorrel horse has long been considered ungovernable and beyond the power of man to back or ride him. So I killed it with my hatchet. <laughs> this morning, aided by my friends, we forced a bit into his mouth. I backed him, I rode him, and in a desperate struggle for the mastery, he fell under me and died on the spot. The hectic of a moment was observed to flush on the matron's cheek, but like a summer cloud, it soon passed away, and all was serene and tranquil. When she remarked, it is well, but while I regret the loss of my favorite, I rejoice in my son who always speaks the truth. Oh, I see. So very similar. Very and that's similar. that's where the cherry tree came into play. Maybe. I mean, it's got all the main elements of the story. You know, you've got Washington involved in destroying one of his parents' favorite things and being mm -hmm. honest about it. But there are some pretty big changes. Oh, yeah. I would say so. I mean, luckily for everyone, there are no hatchets involved, right? Jeez. Although... Would have been a different story. An animal did wind up dead. You know. A lot less um, gruesome, though. Yeah. 
so you can see why Parson Weems uh, might change it up for a young audience. Mm-hmm. He makes George younger. He's like six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fruit tree instead of an animal. Yes. And they do different things. The horse version, it kind of shows off George's skills and invincibility along with his honesty. And the cherry tree story is just about his honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and showing that Washington came from a family that valued honesty above mm-hmm. all else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really important to him. But Parson Weems not only changes the story, but he switches the parent. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, he makes George Washington's father the virtuous one, passing on the reverence for truth to his son, really cutting Mary out of the narrative. Hmm. And I mean, she loved gardens and trees too. So, like, even if you understandably want to impart George Washington's boyhood honesty to children without making George into, you know, some kind of horse killer, Mm -hmm. you could still keep his mother in the story. Well, women are often cut out of the narrative. Yeah. She's cut out of this opportunity to be part of a virtuous story, and the stories that do mm-hmm. get attached to her are all about how she was an annoyance. Mm. And that brings us to Act Four, okay. the final act, Lightning. Oh, the origin story. Yes. The next story is all about death as well, but not in animals. Okay, good. It's a little easier to hear for some reason. Yeah. So the first. Animals are just innocent, you know? No, I get it. Although, I mean, the sorrel was, you know, Difficult. Yeah, but it was saying, screw all of you, I'm wild. I guess. It's pretty sad. It may not be true, if that's any comfort. Yeah, thank you, it is. You're welcome. (laughs) It's all a lie. Oh, thank you, I do appreciate your honesty. (laughs) (laughs) The first version of this lightning story that I heard came from a 1997 biography of George Washington by Willard Stern Randall. In that story, Mary Ball Washington while she was pregnant with George, mm-hmm. was having some guests over on a Sunday evening after church during a thunderstorm. And a bolt of lightning came through the chimney and struck one of the guests, a young girl, killing her instantly so sad. and fusing her knife and fork together. And the lightning didn't stop there. It also jolted Mary and presumably unborn George. I wrote a post about this called George Washington's Superhero Origin Story Mm -hmm. in 2014. First of all, how does lightning come through the chimney? Well, that could happen. And how does it pass on from one person to another like that? If they're touching or connected by anything that could conduct electricity, that could happen too. And how did it not kill Mary? Um, Lots of people get struck by lightning and are not killed. Lots of people get struck by lightning? Well... That sentence is (laughs) problematic. Um, it depends how you define lots, but uh, I think 90% of people struck by lightning don't die. Yeah, but it killed the person next to her. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that young girl absorbed most of the energy. That's so sad. Yeah. I related this story uh, based on Randall's telling of it, and then I had fun imagining a mad scientist, Ben Franklin, sending lightning back in time to energize us <laughs> founding fetus. Um, it was a fun riff on what I thought was a real wild story. Mm-hmm. It turns out the story may not be all that I hoped it was. Not true, you mean? <laughs> Let's not use I mean, harsh words. It's, it sounds pretty made up to um, me. Well, everything's got a root, right? <laughs> a couple years ago, I came across a blog called Lives and Legacies. It's related to two um, Washington family sites, Historic Kenmore and George Washington's Ferry Farm. <laughs> And Heather Baldus, she's the collections manager there, she decided to look into this story. And we'll listen to her words. Okay. I began researching the story to try and establish its legitimacy and accuracy. Well done. This began a deep descent down the rabbit hole of historical myth versus truth. Cool. I know. She's she's killing me softly with her song. Yeah. Like, historical (laughs) myth versus truth is my jam. At least it is now. Back then... You didn't know what the hell you were writing about. I was playing a different tune. Or you were just naive. Yeah. I, you were reading to learn and not reading to argue. That's part of it. How far you've come. And I'm pretty sure that Heather Baldus called me out on it. Oh, really? In her post, she talks about how different writers have used this story over time. Mm-hmm. And she says, while traumatic for Mary, this alleged lightning event also serves as a kind of prophecy or superhero origin story Whoa. for her future son, turning George into a demigod worthy of becoming the father of a nation. Do you think she was referring to you? I'm not sure if I was the first to make that connection. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I mean, my post was obviously tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. But she has a point. I never questioned the authenticity of the actual lightning story or poked at the primary sources. 
Well, you were a youngin and naive and a budding analyst. Yeah, but I mean, the same can't be said of lots of biographers who still pass off these stories. Right. Um, Maybe they're budding as well. You know, I guess not everyone can be as bl- as a full a f- bloom, a full bloomed flower <laughs> yes, like yourself, a full bloomed corpse flower. <laughs> Ooh, um, those are stinky. They are. It, it's fitting. It's yeah, fitting for you. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> um, so Baldus traced the story back as far as 1850, which is 10 years before Wash's book came out. This is just a little aside. I fell into a rabbit hole of my own. I found the earliest source of the story actually comes 20 years before that in 1831. Mm. And it's George Washington Park Custis. His stories were published in book form in 1860. But this one about Mary Washington was published in several magazines in 1831. And you can't quite trust Wash's account of things. Because even if he's not making stuff up, even if he's just sharing family stories, maybe the stuff he heard when he was nine years old uh, is the stuff that you tell a nine-year-old. Right. Yeah. We all grow up with certain truths in our head that we don't really question because it was such a part of our childhood and we always just assumed it was true. Yeah. And some of the stuff that he says that got passed on, we know isn't true. Right. Like right before he gets into the lightning story, he talks about the pressing entreaties of her son that she would make Mount Vernon the home of her old age. As if George was trying to get his mother to move in with him. <laughs> we know that was not true. Right. Because there are letters from George telling her how much she would hate it there. It'd be too loud for her to get any rest. There were constantly visitors in and out. She'd feel burdened to look presentable all the time. <laughs> um, he, that would be a burden. He was, Yeah, he was not begging her to live with him. Walsh sets up Mary as having no faults. And then he says that her one weakness was her fear of lightning. Here are his exact words, the earliest known instance of this lightning story, because we're going to talk about how it goes off the rails. Okay. In early life, a female friend had been killed at her side while sitting at the table, the knife and fork in the hands of the unfortunate being melted by the electric fluid. The matron never recovered from the shock occasioned by this distressing incident. On the approach of a thundercloud, she would retire to her chamber and not leave it again till the storm had passed over. That's the story in its original form. This story has Mary sitting beside a young woman who was struck by lightning Mm -hmm. and electric fluid melting her knife and fork. Uh But there's some differences, big differences between this and more recent versions. Right. The biggest is that she's not pregnant. (sighs) Wow. Yeah, this story took place in early life. Mm. Uh, Yeah, and the knife and fork aren't fused together here. They're melted by electric fluid. Mm Kind of cool. And there's no chimney. This makes me wonder if maybe... They were at a picnic table outside, and the knife and fork melted because they were plastic. Okay, Howard. What? I don't see any holes in the story. I I don't see see anything. I see some inconsistencies. This is airtight, this theory. (laughs) There's nothing... Hmm. You're having some doubts? I'm having a few doubts. Well, about what? <laughs> about plastic, first and foremost. What, uh, oh, you didn't... Plastic goods. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You must not know. Plastic was invented by Lord William Ziploc uh. <laughs> in the 1690s. Okay. In Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for breaking that down. You can visit his tomb. I like the idea that they were outside, body. though. It's in Tupperware. <laughs> oh, ew. Um, I just want to know this picnic table idea is good though. Yeah, I, like I mean, it's that a little this more likely. Could be outside. Maybe yeah, they weren't inside. There's no chimney. The yeah. chimney makes it. The whole idea of lightning being precise enough to go down the chimney. First of all, it can't happen. I mean, but first, it's. I'm now a lightning I would expert. Ima- by the way, yeah. When did you become a lightning expert? Uh, first last and foremost, days. maybe you're just not yet blossoming in your lightning research. No, pinnacle of lightning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll wait for you to mature a little with your lightning research I'm, because I'm my own. I mean, I haven't done much research on lightning, but my own I know understanding <laughs> of lightning is that it would have to be mighty precise to go down a chimney. Um, That's highly unlikely. I appreciate. So I your like your opinion. I like your opinion that it was outside. That's um, more likely. As far as chimneys, that kind of thing has happened, where lightning has come down a chimney and, and at least nearly struck someone who was inside. Like once ever, maybe. You know, in retellings from the 1850s to the 1880s, Mary is around 15 years old when her friend gets zapped. Then in 1886... So hopefully not pregnant. Right. I mean, she wasn't... She didn't get married until she was like 22 or 23. Oh, she was a spinster. Some authors have actually argued that. 
Oh my gosh. And said that the fact that she didn't get married when she was 18 I was joking. means that there must have been some problem with her to start with. Oh my, I was just joking. Uh, it's out there. In 1886, a writer named John Benson Lossing, he moves the story up to soon after her marriage. Okay. Yeah, so this is his version, uh, but he doesn't say that she's pregnant, mm-hmm. although she had George 11 months after she got married, so chances are pretty good that maybe she was. Mm-hmm. Then in 1932, I found a spread that ran in a bunch of newspapers uh, for Mother's Day, and it was also the 200th anniversary of George's birth. Nestled in this really beautifully illustrated article is this nugget. Shortly before a nestled nugget, a nestled nugget, a nugget nestled, <sighs> so nestled. That sounds great. Put it in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly before George was born, the family were sitting one night at supper when a terrific thunderstorm broke. Lightning struck the house and running down the chimney killed a young girl who was visiting them. Mary Washington, sitting across from her guest, saw the girl's knife and fork melt and run together in her hands. Forever afterward, stout-hearted woman though she was, she hid her head and prayed whenever lightning flashed. Okay, so that's a development. Yeah, so depending on how you define shortly before George was born, Mary's pregnant here. Okay. But this young visiting girl, uh, she's not beside Mary, she's across from her. Mm -hmm. So Mary has a front row seat to watch this Terminator 2 liquid metal thing happen right before her eyes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, I mean, you've got you've got lightning, you've got um, liquid metal, you've got maybe this girl was a Terminator sent back in time to make sure that George Washington was never born. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it also begs the question: if it struck the house, yeah. that's different. Then it might run in on metal somewhere on the house if they're well, using sure. metal at all. Yeah, who knows where it, it struck? Can it came condu- through the chimney. Well, that's what I disagree with. I don't think it came through the chimney. Okay. Martha Saxton mentions the not pregnant young woman version of the story in her book, and she doesn't she doesn't doubt that it might be based on something. And she thinks this brush with death might have made Mary even more fearful than she would have been after so many people around her had already died. Craig Shirley, however, writing in 2019, when people, you know, should know better, he goes (laughs) for the pregnant version of the story. Wow. Well, he these are authors who do want to sell books. I mean, let's let's oh, I get it. Let's I keep totally in mind that it. they are trying to sell their book I, and would like it to be exciting. Yes, I totally get the temptation for it to be this pregnant origin story type thing because uh, I fell for it myself. Mm-hmm. But he even says that the story comes from George Washington Park Custis in his book. But then he chooses to go with this detail that wasn't added until the 1880s at the earliest. So he's making a choice to ignore the evidence. Yeah, he presents the story this way. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's no primary evidence that it happened, but it certainly fits the growth of her character. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then he says, the thunderstorm or whatever may or may not have happened that night shaped the pregnant Mary from her childhood innocence to something more, something that would similarly shape the life of her son. So it it strikes me as careless in a biography where you're supposed to be like digging up the untold story Mm -hmm. to go this route and to use a detail and and make it this like um, sensational story instead of the truth. Yeah. And this this huge piece of Mary Washington's life, you know. Well, if you're telling the story of her life, it's it's not cool to depend on something that just isn't true. Yeah. As one of your cornerstones of your argument. Right. I would agree. I would agree as well. <laughs> Heather Baldus, she wrote her post about looking into this story five months before Shirley's book came out. And with that timing, I don't expect him to have seen or been aware of what she wrote. But it strikes me as wild that she asked, why would writers continue to use this story as a pivotal and personality molding event in Mary's history? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Craig what Shirley does. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. He calls out the authors who call Mary a shrew, but he falls into the same traps. He literally ends his book with saying, in a way, George's first battle for freedom was from his own mother. Mm. It's even on the book jacket. Wow. He's so close to getting to the role of misogyny and characterizing her so Mm -hmm. close. But sounds like he did. (laughs) He takes it on. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily point it out. He talks about her fierceness and individuality, traits that she shared with her son. Mm -hmm. And he says that while in George... Those qualities evinced themselves through nobility and sacrificial leadership. Mary's authority was used quite differently. Her small-time tyranny hung over her son. Oh, my gosh. So you can have those same 
characteristics in a woman, it's called tyranny. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. It just seems like he has a lack of insight about him, his own writing. Yeah. His research team, I mean, seems good. It's just his conclusions department that I think is a little behind the times. Yeah. And I know some people say you can't impose present day norms on the past. And yes, context matters. But I'm not. I think you can, though. In some ways. In some ways, I think you can. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm just saying that in 2021 or 2019, if you're going to explore the history of anyone, especially someone with historically less rights and representation, then at least use the best tools available. Mm -hmm. Simply asking, would you say the same thing about a man? Yeah. Um, would have changed so much. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start if you're writing about a woman. I think a man writing about a woman is a slippery slope, period. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you have to... You better uh, be critical of yourself. probably some built-in biases that you have to be aware of. And yeah, and, yeah or just self-reflect on in, um, in your own writing, at least. Yeah, I just, I don't think Craig Shirley would call a man a small-time tyrant for doing what Mary Ball Washington did. I agree, yeah. But Martha Saxton has it going on. Yeah, yeah. I would say um, they're both nice biographies of Mary Washington, mm -hmm. but one of them, I think, really brings something new to the table. And the other one that purports to be an untold story mm -hmm. is kind of falling into a lot of the traps that it, it seems That you did to. as an early researcher. Yeah. Well, that was a fantastic book review. Thank, Thank you. <laughs> yes, this was an extended book review. Um, I mean, they they both did send me review copies, so this I'm is what you get. Great. <laughs> Yikes. Um, one major way that I think Mary Ball Washington's influences is underrated is I mean, all of these things that she did. She did everything that she could to get George Washington to that next level of the aristocracy. She lent him money for dance lessons, which really paid off because he could cut a rug. <laughs> she instilled in him traits that she got from those devotional books. Um, and she used them as teaching tools. Like that, that book by Matthew Hale, Contemplations Moral and Divine. It's got a whole chapter on humility and the evils of pride and how you need to be aware of your defects and deficiencies. And how these traits are not only godly, but will help you get ahead in life. We're talking to you, Craig Shirley. Oh my God, No. How dare you? I'm I didn't sorry. say he's deficient in morality. <laughs> I mean, his Twitter feed might be. Like, uh, oh, my God. Um, <sighs> so Mary drilled these things into George's mind, and he internalized them until they became one of his defining characteristics. And this is key. The framers of the Constitution created the office of the presidency with George Washington in mind. They gave that office so much power because they trusted him with it. Mm -hmm. They trusted him to set the precedents. His military ambition, that was all his own. But his humility, his honesty, and the other traits that made him someone who could be trusted unanimously to lead the country. Came from his parents. Yeah. And those are why, for better or worse, the Constitution doesn't have more limits on the power of the executive. Mm -hmm. We have Mary Ball Washington's influence on her son to thank for the lack of barriers on the president. <laughs> For better or for worse. Yeah, if you want to hate her for that reason, at least you've got <laughs> some evidence. Right. Well, I think the stories of Mary, it's just another example of mom shaming that mm. goes way back. And it's continued today. It's just another, here's a woman who raised the first president of the United yeah. States. Some might argue she did a damn good job if he wound up in that spot and was so successful at it. It's just another example of mom shaming, shaming women for their choices through motherhood. Yeah. And motherhood was very different back then. It wasn't. I would argue warm... more difficult. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't this warm, fuzzy, like loving, nurturing thing so much it's as it was. It's so warm and fuzzy now, I got to say. It's, it's, right. It's but a pretty we... difficult role. Yeah. Um, I mean, I even at the, even I'm... in the easiest of times. It seem it's... that hard to me. <laughs> it's like you're really you're going to sit there and criticize the woman who produced someone who ended up being the president of the United States. Yeah. Was known because, for his humility. Because she committed the great sin of annoying him. I want to go back to that 1932 article that talked about the lightning because it got a lot wrong and it came out before Mary Washington's legacy went through even more of a roller coaster. But I think its final paragraph is pretty good and I'll read it. This is from 1932. The trouble is we are incurable sentimentalists. We insist on making over historical characters to suit our notions of what they should be, chipping, sandpapering, and polishing each personality until it assumes what we consider the proper contour and color. 
That kind of thing is what happened to the mother of Washington. I like this. The original shape is nothing to be ashamed of. Poured back into her first mold, she emerges a creditable figure, well-qualified to stand on her own feet and needing no apologist. Mm, Love that. Yeah. Exactly. Don't apologize for who you were or how you raised that kid of yours because he wound up making quite a dent. (laughs) I agree. I think that Martha Saxton comes the closest to getting to Mary's original mold. Mm. Um, But the fact that this author back in 1932 thought we had it all figured out. (laughs) um, It reminds me that there's always more to learn. Mm -hmm. And Saxton also reminds me that so much of what you learn depends on the questions that you're asking. I love that. And and you have to remember you'll really never know her. You know, I mean, you just will never know the intricacies that made her a human. Right made her a person and a mother i mean you just can't understand the layers of a person from that long ago no period next week we're going to be talking about something uh that translates extremely well on a podcast photography oh well that'll be a little challenging Uh, a little challenge for you there we go we've got dr kara finnegan author of the new book, Photographic Presidents, Making History from Daguerreotype to Digital. Very cool. She's going to be talking about the intersection of history and photography and the presidents and some of my favorite presidential photos. That's going to be really cool. The full interview uh, will also be up on our Patreon, which is a rockin' family to be a part of. Check it out. Yes, join the fam bam. Check out plodpod.com for more information about that, a link to our sweet merch shop, and much more. It's so sweet. I spent quite a bit of money there. <laughs> yes. <sighs> yes, you did. Um, if you like what you heard, please spread the love. Write a review. Tell a friend. Reach out to us. Yes. Love to hear from you guys. Thank you for plotting along with us. Thank you for plotting. Screw all of you. I'm wild.